0: Hello, West Village Church, how's it going? Welcome to you, especially if you're new, uh, watching online, wherever you are, whenever you are watching this, a huge welcome to you. My name is Chris, one of the leaders here at the church. Uh, My joy and privilege to teach and preach the Bible uh, and to share with you from God's Word today. Um, We are in the Lent season as a church family, and uh, Lent is that season between um, Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday where the church prepares itself Uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've personally been really enjoying this season as a church family. It's been great to come together around a number of common themes and ideas. One of the things I've personally been really enjoying is just our daily times of prayer. Every single day we have a 30-minute slot where people come onto a Zoom call. We pray for something very specific together, uh, and it's been great. I personally have been trying to get to every single one of those that I can, and just been great to see people, been great to pray with brothers and sisters for our church, for the city, for uh, for the government. Uh, it's just been fantastic. I encourage you to join in. You can get all the details for everything we're doing with regards to Lent if you just go to our website, westvillagechurch.com forward slash Lent. Everything's on there. Uh, yeah, it'd be great to see you join us uh, for, for those prayer times. Uh, but part of the Lent season as well has been us. Uh, going through a teaching series called Death by Love. And really what we are doing with this series is we're taking a look at the cross of Christ. Uh, We're asking the question, what does the cross mean? Uh, There's a a big theological term to describe what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And it's the, the the word is atonement. And that word atonement literally means like fixing or repairing. Some people would say uh, the, the atonement, you know, you can break that word down to say at one mint, like at one with. And it's just this theological concept that we, as people, are broken and sinful, and that as a, as a result of our sin, our relationship with with God, with creation, with with one another, has been damaged and marred and and is broken. And what Jesus accomplished in going to the cross is our atonement. He he actually is fixing and he's repairing uh, the brokenness as a result of our sin. And so um, for for many of us, if we've been in church for any length of time, we've heard this before, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We hear this idea or this concept and we kind of feel like that's sort of like junior varsity stuff. Like when you first become a Christian, that's what you learn about. And then after that, you kind of just get on with the business of following Jesus, you know, going to church and Bible study and stuff like that. But the reality is uh, the, the cross is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It's the totality of what we believe. It's, it's the, the zenith of everything that the Bible teaches and that we espouse. And, and it's perhaps, well, not perhaps, it is the most important thing uh, for us as followers of Jesus to meditate on, think on, and be changed and transformed by. Uh, John Stott, who wrote a fantastic book called The Cross of Christ, Uh, He said this about uh, the atonement, about what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. He says it's like a multi-sided jewel that has many different perspectives or ways that you can see inside to the center of the jewel. And with every perspective that we look into the center of the jewel, we get this glimpse into the heart and the nature and the character and the essence of who God is. And so this sermon series, as we go through this each week, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take a different angle or a different approach or a different, you know, look, view, if you will, into the, the center of the cross. And by going to the center of the cross, what we're really seeing is the center of the heart of God. And so today, today's a heavy one, right? I get the heavy ones. Uh, today, we are looking at this idea that, um, that what God has done for us in Christ on the cross is that he he poured out his wrath. He poured out his righteous anger, his justice upon Jesus Christ. And it's just this theological concept that we would call penal substitutionary atonement. And it's the idea that Jesus received our punishment. And what we're going to do to unpack this theme is we're going to go actually through a story in uh, the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, grab it or open up the Bible app on your phone. Go to Exodus chapter 1. And what we see in the book of Exodus is uh, this story that is perhaps one of the most significant stories throughout all of the scriptures. For the Jewish people in particular, this story that we see in Exodus, is it, it, is, their, it is the high point of their faith. Uh, it, it is their Jesus moment, if you will. It's this reality that the, the people of God, the Jewish people, were enslaved to a tyrannical leader, and God showed up in a remarkable way, and he saved them, he redeemed them. I mean, we've seen the movies, we've heard the stories, especially if you've been in church, but this is one of those stories that even transcends beyond church culture and into the, the culture at large. People know this story. This is one of the, those Bible stories, right? It's kind of like David and Goliath. You've heard this story before. And for the Christian, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the way that we understand this story, miraculous work of God, for sure. Uh, It it is a wonderful uh, act of God to save and rescue and redeem his people. But for us, what this story does is it points forward to a greater reality. This is like a shadow of something more significant that is to come. It's a a foreshadowing of the reality of Jesus' death on the cross in our place for our sins. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story and we're going to kind of use it as a like a living metaphor for what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So, if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter one, picking up in verse six, here is what is recorded for us. Now, Joseph, and all his brothers and all uh, and all that generation had died. So really quickly, Joseph had been sold into slavery to the nation of Egypt. He rose to prominence, He became a leader. Uh, and and the nation of Israel was living amongst the Egyptian people. They had great favor. Uh, from the Egyptian government and from the Egyptian people, and this generation has died. So this kind of, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel at that time have, have kind of moved on, verse seven, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. So they multiplied uh, greatly, they increased in number, they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So they're kind of taken over, right? They're, they're obeying Jesus's, or God's command rather, in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then we see this in verse eight, then a new king uh, to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. So the story is kind of being set up for us. At one point, Joseph uh, and the nation of Israel, they had great favor uh, by, by the Egyptian leaders, by the Pharaoh at that time, the, the current Pharaoh. Um, he passed away, Joseph passed away, a new Pharaoh comes on the scene and you can kind of see where this is going. So, so look at what happens next. Verse nine, here is what the new Pharaoh says. Verse nine, he says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them. Notice the language that is used here, right? Verse verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them. With forced labor, uh, they built Pithom and Ramses as stone, uh, stone, uh, stone cities Sorry for Pharaoh. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Verse 13, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them Ruthlessly. Uh, so you get this picture here of the people of God put into slavery. And, and we've already talked about this, but the language that is used to describe uh, the, the reality that the people of God were facing at this time, when we see this in verse 11, it's talked about them being oppressed. Verse 13, they were worked ruthlessly. Verse 14, their lives were made bitter. The bottom line is simply this things weren't good for them, they were enslaved. And slavery is this massive biblical category that is used often to depict uh, the, the human state as it is uh, in relationship to God, especially when it falls into sin. So theologically, there's this idea that uh, that is taught that, that humans are born into sin. Just like our first father, Adam, we have been born into to sin, that his sin kind of uh, that came before us kind of leads to our being born into sin. And as a result of his sin, all of us, every single human being is born into sin. We are sinners by nature and we are both, uh, sorry, we are both sinners by nature and by choice. And as a result of this, there is this, this image that is used all throughout the scriptures to describe the way that that humanity operates. And it's that we are enslaved to sin. Uh, This is something we see in the Old Testament. We see it right here in the book of Exodus. But but, but we see it multiple times throughout the, the history of God's people in the Old Testament where they would choose to worship other gods. They would choose to rebel against God. And as a result, God would bring punishment upon them. He would bring in foreign nations. And those nations would enslave the people of God. And then they would repent and they would go free. And that is all a giant metaphor for what is taking place in the human heart. The theme is picked up in the New Testament also. The Apostle Paul talks about this idea of of humanity being enslaved to sin. He says this in Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 verse 16. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the Apostle Paul says, you can either enslave yourself to obedience or you can enslave yourself to sin. He picks it up again verse 20, carries on where he says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, but what benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of. Those things result in death. And again, Paul gives us this picture of, of humanity being enslaved to their sin. In other words, they are unable to choose anything other than sin for themselves. Jesus himself talks about this in John chapter 8. Jesus gets into this conversation with uh, the religious leaders and, and some of uh, some of the Jewish people. And they're having a conversation where Jesus is, is offering them freedom from their religious enslavement, freedom from from the law in his teaching. And here's here's how this conversation goes. Uh, John chapter eight, verse 33, they answered him. So the people Jesus is talking to answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. Apparently they forgot about Exodus chapter one. Uh, How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what he says. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins, is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father, talking about their father Abraham, not God the Father. So we get this picture of the reality of the human condition, that we are born into sin, and as a result of us being born into sin, we are enslaved to sin. Again, we are sinners by both by nature and by choice, and we have to grapple with this. We have to, uh, we have to understand this. If we're going to properly understand what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we have to properly understand the condition of our hearts, we have to be willing to admit the fact that we are indeed sinful. Culture wants to minimize sin. Culture wants to trivialize it. It wants to psychologize it away. It wants to call it a personality disorder or wants to describe sin as merely a mistake. Blame it on our family of origin we have all kinds of ways of dressing up our own brokenness and making it seem like it's not that big a deal making it seem like it's something other than what it actually is which is that the human heart the human condition is one that is broken one that is sinful one that is enslaved we want to do everything but take responsibility and ownership for it i mean just with me for a second little thought experiment take a couple minutes and just look at the state of the world. You cannot escape the reality that the world is a dark and broken place. Uh, you think about it on a global scale, we have wars, we have, uh, we have famines, we have you know, systemic poverty, we have slavery, human trafficking. You look at our own country, we see inequality, we see, uh, we see the mistreatment of other human beings, we see political strife and brokenness, we see all kinds of wealth uh, disparity and inequality. Even in our own lives, in my life, in your life, if we're honest, if we actually look at our lives with sober judgment, it's really hard to be completely objective. But if we're actually objective, what are we going to see? That we're broken and that we are hurting. That is why right now in our world, there's such a a desire for justice. There's such a desire for us to, to pursue Uh, justice and righteousness. It comes from a good place. It comes from people looking out at the world, seeing that the world's broken, seeing that there's racial inequality, seeing that there's economic inequality, seeing that there's all kinds of ways in which the world is systemically broken. But the problem is this. We aren't adequately able to diagnose what is really going on. And so as a result, we as human beings, we don't know how to fix it. So so we look at something like one that is uh, right now talked about a lot in our world, right? Like systemic injustice, especially when it comes to race and gender. Really, any ism, whether it's racism or sexism, at the root of what is going on is a sin problem. See, as a culture, what we want to do is we want to diagnose this as a as a system problem. That's that's why we call it systemic, systemic racism, systemic injustice, systemic, uh, systemic sexism. But to merely make this an issue of a system is to completely misunderstand what's actually happening. You see, if we boil any ism down to a system, and we change the system, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to invert the problem. We're just going to take the oppressed and turn them into the oppressors. And those who were the ones who were oppressing will now become the ones who are oppressed. Now, I'm not suggesting there doesn't need to be changes made in our world. I'm not suggesting we don't need to rethink how we've uh, operated as a society or a culture. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that as a culture, we have completely misunderstood what is actually going on. And unless we acknowledge the reality that, that we are broken, we are sinful, that we are actually the ones that are the problem, we are the ones that are what is wrong with the world, we are not going to fix anything. All the systemic isms in our world are not new problems. These have been around for a long time, long before we were around. They were around when Jesus was on the earth and they will be around long after we are gone. Why? Because the problem is not the system. The problem is the people in the system and the people in the system are sinful. We're enslaved to our sin. G.K. Chesterton, who's a great Christian thinker and writer, was reading a newspaper one day, and they were soliciting responses from their readers to uh, answer the question, and it's a good question to ask, what is wrong with the world? So the newspaper puts this out, says to its readers, we want you to write to us and tell us what is wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton, who's, uh, he's written a lot of books, smart guys, said a lot of really smart things. He, he wrote a letter back to them, and here's what he wrote. He said, uh, dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He got it he understood the actual problem. The actual problem was G.K. Chesterton, his sin. The actual problem is that we have sin. We are are enslaved. Just like the people of God were enslaved with no way out, we too are enslaved. Let's jump back into the Exodus story. Exodus, uh, flip over in your Bibles to chapter, uh, chapter 11. In Exodus chapter 11, picking up verse 1, we We read this, okay, now the story's progressed a lot over 10 chapters, and I'll try and catch us up really quick, but here's what we see, verse one, now the Lord said to Moses, so from among the people who were enslaved, God raises a mediator up for them. This is Moses, Moses emerges from among the people as a mediator, there's a great story there, I really encourage you to go back and read that, Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus, one who's gonna come and mediate between God and the people. And here's what Moses says, and he's talking to Pharaoh. So to the one who has enslaved the people of God, he says this, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go. Sorry, Moses was speaking to the people of God. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. You tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So what had happened was God brought a series of plagues among the Egyptian amongst the Egyptian people as a way of trying to get Pharaoh to let the people of God go, but Pharaoh refused to, he refused to. And so at last um, God's going to bring one more plague and I want to hone in on this uh, on this plague because this plague is going to get to uh, the core of what we want to talk about as it pertains the cross of Christ. So look at what happens here, verse 4. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a lot of wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any person or animal. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I, the Lord, make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, go. And all the people who follow you, get out of here. And after that, I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So there's this final plague that is going to come. Moses comes before Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh, listen, you need to let God's people go. You need to free them from their slavery. Pharaoh refuses. He says, fine, there's going to be one more plague. And what is God's solution to the problem, to the enslavement of his people? We are told in chapter 11 that every firstborn son in Egypt will die. I want you just to sit with that for a minute. Now, we've heard this before. We're familiar with the story. But if you're actually thinking, if we're actually like thinking about what is taking place, our response to this should be, what? What is going on? how how could god right god how could god do something like this i mean this seems so vindictive this seems so so petty so so maniacal so diabolical so unjust that he would kill every firstborn in the land Friends, what we see here in Exodus chapter 11 is something that we see all throughout the scriptures. And it's a picture of the justice of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God put on display. Now, the word that is often used to describe what is, what is being portrayed here and in other places in the Bible is the word wrath. It's not a word we use very often, but the word wrath as it pertains to god in kind of a theological con- context literally means god's righteous judgment against evil the wrath of god is is his anger but it's not this petty anger it's not this um it's not this uh, anger whereby god flies off uh, the handle where he's he's petty or he where he loses control of his temper, it is the righteous anger of God against evil. And I want to include in that definition that the wrath of God, his righteous judgment and anger against evil includes our sin. This is not a topic we hear a whole lot about, is it? If you've been in church for a long time, you probably haven't heard a whole lot of sermons on the wrath of God. It doesn't get talked about a whole lot. It doesn't get preached on very often. If you haven't grown up in church, then there's a really good chance that your view of who God is and how He works and, and what He thinks about, about when it comes to sin and evil, uh, it's been you know significantly informed by the culture. You've been shaped by the culture. And there's this reality that many of us, even those of us in the church, we've been lied to about who God is. Uh, We've been told that God is sort of this whimsical God, right, who's up in heaven. He's more like a fairy sky princess, you know, than he is like a holy, righteous, just God. And, And really all he wants to do is love us and bless us. He doesn't have standards. He doesn't have expectations, right? God just loves. Everyone loves that picture of God. But here's the problem. It's a lie, or at least it omits a significant portion of the truth. I mean, if you were just to take the, the sheer tonnage of weight of of verses in the Bible, here's what you're going to see: if you took all the verses in the Bible that talk about God's righteous anger, if you talk about His wrath, you talk about His justice, and you're to place them on one end of the scale, and then you take all the other verses. Out of the Bible, the ones that talk about his love and his mercy and his grace, the ones that we love to quote all the time, right? Put on, uh, you, you know, mugs and keychains and bumper stickers and you put those on the other side of the scale, just sheer weight or tonnage. Here's where you're going to see that what is talked about way more throughout the scriptures is the justice, the wrath, the judgment of God, significantly more, hundreds of times more. Now, I want to be clear for a second, because it's a bit of a false dichotomy, in my opinion, to separate the justice of God from the love of God. You, you you can't do that. You can't separate the wrath of God from the love of God, because I believe those two things go hand in hand, that it's actually unloving to not be just. And it's not just to not be loving. You have to be both, and God is indeed both. But here is the reality. Make no mistake about this, friends, the number one attribute that is talked about as it pertains to God throughout the entirety of the scriptures, is his holiness more than any other attribute. It's his holiness, his purity, his, his otherness than us. R.C. Sproul, who's a pastor theologian, he says this He says, A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, and no sovereignty, no justice, and no holiness, and no wrath, listen to what he says, is an idol. He's an idol. In other words, he's a God that you've just made up because you don't like the one that's in the Bible. Just make up this picture in your mind of what God is. Keller, Tim Keller, who we talk quote here often, he says, if if your God always agrees with you all the time, you probably made him up. So, So we hear texts like this and concepts like this what's our response, right? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 1 where we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth of God. We take the truth and we're like, we don't like that. Let's push it off to the side. I don't really want to deal with that. I want to just talk about Fairy Sky Jesus. I don't really want to talk about Wrath of God Jesus. Not not good. Don't want to talk about it. And so we, we kind of come up with all kinds of ways to dance around this idea. So we say goofy things, silly things. Christians say silly things. I mean, I hear this all the time. Well, we say things like, God hates the sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. You ever say that before? Right? You ever heard somebody say that before? Here, here's the problem. Right? I mean, I cringe when I hear people say this. Uh, first of all, it's not true. I mean, this is, this is nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible. In fact, if we're not 100% sure who said this, but it's usually attributed to Gandhi, not Jesus, that quote. The second thing that is really a problem with this is that we would never think about justice like this in our own lives. I mean, we we want to judge God by a standard that we ourselves don't even want to be judged by. I mean, just think about this with me for a second. Imagine saying of of somebody who abused their spouse, saying, I hate abuse, but not abusers. Uh, Think about saying this towards a rapist. I hate rape, but I don't hate rapists or a pedophile, or a murderer. And on and on and on. It's not how we operate. It's not even how we define justice. Why would we hold God to a standard that we are not even willing to hold ourselves to? But here's perhaps the biggest problem. Scriptures don't teach this. Scriptures don't teach that God hates sin and loves the sinner. I mean, I I realize, don't... I don't think this isn't lost on me that Jesus loves sinners, okay? It's not, not what I'm saying. But we create a false dichotomy and a massive category error when we start to think of sin as something that happens out there and not something that is deeply embedded inside the human heart. See, the scripture teaches the complete opposite of this idea that God hates the sin but not the sinner, The reality is what the Bible teaches is that God is holy. He's just, and he hates evil, and he hates evildoers. I want you just to sit with that for a second. And I know, I know it's heavy. It's hard. hard. And some of you are thinking to yourself, but but Chris, that's just not very nice. I, I don't know if I like it. Here's what I would say, I don't know if I like it either, but it's what the Bible says. It's what the scriptures teach. And So so as a follower of Jesus, I have to decide, am I going to humbly submit myself to his word or am I gonna put his word underneath me, underneath my submission? Am I gonna say to the Bible, you know what, I'm gonna submit to you, I'm gonna submit to what you say, even if it bothers me, even if I don't like it, I'm going to conform my will and my ideas and my concepts of human nature and sin and evil and justice and righteousness and all that stuff. I want to conform that to you as opposed to trying to ask you to conform to me. This is what the scriptures teach. I'll just quickly go through some passages of scripture in the Old Testament. We see this in Psalm chapter five, Psalm chapter five, verses five and six. We see this: the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Listen to what this says. Okay, again, I don't write the mail; I just deliver it, just to prove I'm not making this up. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. You bloodthirsty and deceitful. Uh, sorry, the bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. Let you deal with that one. Psalm 11, verses five and six. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Gotta deal with this. And some of you would say, but Chris, that's the Old Testament, right? The God of the Old Testament, he was kind of like junior high God. He was still kind of figuring out how to, deal with his, you know, pent-up emotions, right? So he, he had these fits of burst and anger. But New Testament God, he's nice. He's kind of come into his own. He's, he's a little bit more relaxed. He's got his hormones under control. Unfortunately, we see a lot of this kind of talk in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Not only that, this is Paul quoting a bunch of uh, concepts from the Old Testament, but it is still the Apostle Paul, nonetheless, using Old Testament concepts to describe a New Testament reality of how God views humanity. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, verse 11, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, listen to this, the older will serve the other just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's in the New Testament. Some of you would say, okay, fine, fine. But what about Jesus? Not Jesus, right? Not, not, not Jesus with the feathered hair and the, the bathrobe and the beauty pageant sash holding the. Lamb in one hand and a baby in the other. He said really nice things like love your neighbor and turn the other cheek. He just wants to, you know, sit down and have tea and talk about our feelings. That's what that's what Jesus does, right? That's that's Jesus. Like, come on, Chris, tell me that's Jesus. Words of Jesus, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. This is a letter Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea. Here's what he says to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, talking about Jesus himself. He's he's just saying, this is from me. Verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Another way to translate this, you make me want to puke. Jesus is literally talking about vomit here. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, the reality is this. Every other religion teaches that humans, humanity, humankind is not that bad, and God is not that good. But Christianity teaches us that God is holy, and we are not. We are sinful. And that doesn't sound like good news, but it is good news. It is good news that God's ways are not our ways, isn't it? It is good news that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. It is good news that God's justice is not our justice, is it not? I mean, everything in us recoils when we hear about a God like this, but I want you just to step back for a moment and think for a moment Ask yourself this question. Don't you, don't I, doesn't our world long for justice? Don't you long for justice? I mean, just think for a second. If you're married, right, and you have a fight with your spouse. Spouses do this once in a while, apparently. Your spouse offends you. Don't you long for justice? I mean, if my spouse, if my dear sweet wife, Kelly, offends me, trust me, I long for justice. I long for justice as if all of Western civilization rests on her giving me justice, right? She's always like, I've already apologized for that, Chris. Why do I need to apologize for that again? Because I want justice. It's not enough. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. There's this reality, though. There's this reality that we want it. I mean, just take a step back and look at her culture for a second. I mean, right now, we are in the throes of what has been dubbed as cancel culture. And I, and I realize this is a very nuanced subject to talk about but but just think about think about what's happening in our world like it's 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 madness it is absolute madness where anyone at any time can get canceled for something that they said 20 years ago when they didn't even have access to the the knowledge or the expectations of the day that we find ourselves in something they said that might not have been politically correct, or they went to a party that they shouldn't have gone to, or they wore an outfit that they shouldn't have worn, or they said a thing that they shouldn't have said. What ends up happening? The Twitter mob comes after them. Pressure gets applied. They get Their job gets uh, taken away from them. Their show gets shut down. They get functionally canceled. Canceled. But at the core of that, what is happening It's a desire for justice. But here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. You have imperfect people uh, applying, rather, imperfect justice in a very imperfect way. I mean, I think Mr. Potato Head got canceled this week. Like, that's, that's crazy. It's crazy. But that is what happens when broken people... Sinful people, imperfect people try and apply imperfect justice. It leads to a multiplication of sin and brokenness in the world. And what Christianity is offering us, what, what, what is offered to us in Christ is a holy God who is perfect and who judges perfectly and applies his perfect justice against an imperfect and sinful world. See, we love the idea of justice. We love it. We love the concept of justice. We just hate the idea of a just God who applies his justice on us. We're fine when justice is applied to someone else. We're fine when God brings justice to bear on those that we have deemed unworthy that we have deemed worthy of wrath, worthy of judgment, worthy of justice. But I want you to notice something. We never include ourselves amongst those who are worthy of his justice. It's why we make lousy gods. And it's why we need the justice of God. So let's jump back into the Exodus story here, okay? Exodus chapter 12. Picking up in verse 1, story goes on. Verse 1 says this, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, in Egypt this month is to be for you the first month, uh, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb that is needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be one years, uh, one-year-old males without defect, and you must take them uh, from sheep or the goats. Take care of them until it's the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the doorposts of the houses where they, where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the uh, the meat raw or boiled in water but roast it over a fire with the head and legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat: with your cloak tucked into your belt, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in uh, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, and on the same night I will pass through Egypt. I will strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No, destru- uh, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So we get this picture of this reality that God is going to bring his justice to bear or deal with the enslavement of the nation of Israel. But here's what he does. He provides a way out for them, a way out of his his wrath and his justice is given to the people of God. And we get this picture of his justice literally passing over top of them. That is why this is called the Passover. And notice the way that it's going to happen. It's a very specific way that is chronicled for us that they are going to be spared from God's justice. We're told that they are to kill a spotless lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then the, as the judgment of God comes through the land, it will literally pass over their house. In other words, for anyone who does this act in faith, whoever would kill the lamb, put the blood on the door, they will be saved from the impending judgment of God. If you were listening in previously, like last week, Matt talked about uh, this idea that Christ is our substitute. And he went back to uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy where, where the lamb was actually the substitute For the sin of the people. And again, we get this picture of this lamb being substituted in the place for the people. And really what this is ultimately a picture of, this is a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ where Jesus is going to go to the cross. Uh, If you remember in John's gospel, when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says to him, behold the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And we get this picture of Jesus going to the cross and actually taking away our sin, but not just taking away our sin, actually taking our punishment, taking our justice. Just as this lamb was slaughtered and the blood represented that they had come underneath the the death of this lamb, the, the blood of the lamb was over them. So too is Jesus going to go to the cross and in going to the cross, what he is going to What he is going to do for us, experience for us, is he is going to receive our punishment. That the death that Jesus dies on the cross is the death that you and I deserve. That Jesus' death on the cross wasn't, wasn't just a death for our sins, although it was indeed a death for our sins. But there's something even more significant happening at the moment that Jesus goes to the cross. If you remember, as Jesus goes to the cross, we're told that it's the middle of the day and it actually becomes dark. And as it becomes dark and as the day goes on and as Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he's experiencing the pain of the crucifixion, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's been spat upon, he's been, he's been stripped naked, he's been humiliated, and he's hanging from the cross. And as he's hanging from the cross, he, he says a number of things, but one of the things he says as he's hanging from the cross, he, he cries out just before he's about to breathe his last breath, he cries out, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? He'd been abandoned by his disciples. He'd been betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. The others had abandoned him in the night. And now even God the Father had turned his face away from the Son. And in this moment, what was happening was this perfect unity that Jesus, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, had with God the Father, the first member of the Trinity. Perfect relationship from eternity past was broken. Why? Because the wrath of God, the justice of God was being poured out on Jesus. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, describes it like this. He says, when Jesus was on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Protestant reformer and Bible teacher and theologian Martin Luther, when commenting on this verse, described it as what he called the great exchange. That in that moment, as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He actually became our sin. That just as in Exodus chapter 12, this lamb died in the place for the the sin or, or the judgment of the people, so too when Jesus went to the cross, he was dying. He became the sin of the people. The justice of God, the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus. But don't miss what Paul says. Not only did Jesus become sin for us, but we became the righteousness of God. And so what this means for us is, yes, of course, Jesus became our, our wrath. He took upon our wrath as he became our sin, but we have become the righteousness of God. So when the Father looks at Jesus in that moment, he sees our sin, he sees all the sin of humanity poured out onto Jesus and he's so broken and he's so He's so ugly because of the sin that the Father actually has to turn his face away. But then the, the beauty is the perfect life of Jesus is then granted to us as a gift of righteousness. We become righteous. Not because we've earned it, because you and I are not righteous. Just look out at our world. But it is something spiritual that happens in the moment that a person gives their life over to Jesus. The Spirit of God enters them and they are given a new heart. And as a result of their new heart, they are given the righteousness of Christ. And so here's the beautiful reality for us, friends. When the Father looks down at you and when he looks down at me, yes, we're sinners, yes, we're broken, yes, we are deserving of justice, but if you are in Christ, then just as the judgment of God passed over the nation of Israel because the blood of the Lamb was on their doorpost, so too does the wrath of God pass over you because you are underneath the blood of the Lamb, you are underneath the blood of Jesus. He sees the blood and he says, oh, that was the righteous life of Christ. He passes over. Beautiful truth for us is this. We are no longer enslaved to our sin. When the Father looks down at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failure. He doesn't see your mistakes because he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. See, every other religion, every other worldview will tell you that you have to do something to earn the love of God. That's what religion is. It's trying really hard to be good so that God's not mad at you. But that's not Christianity. That's not what Jesus is teaching. What we see in Christianity is a holy God who you and I have sinned against. And yes, this God longs for justice. He's going to execute justice. He's going to give justice. We deserve his justice, but he doesn't leave us in that place. He himself enters into human history, into the flesh, and he himself lives a perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived, and he goes to the cross in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God. God takes the punishment on himself. We sin against God. We wrong God. We ignore God. And when God says he's going to hold us accountable, we get mad at God because we're like petulant little toddlers. And yet, despite all of that, God says, I love you and I will bear, I will bear the weight of your sin and I will make a way. The Puritans had this saying that when you look at the cross of Christ, when you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, there's this beautiful reality where you see the justice of God and the mercy of God coming together. They actually said it like this. It's at the cross where we see the justice of God and the mercy of God. Kiss. Friends, this is is heavy stuff. I understand. Believe me, I understand. I wasn't looking forward to this, okay? But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is good news. This is good news. Your sin is forgiven. Your debt has been paid. Jesus bore your punishment you deserved the cross and he died in your place for your sins and you don't need to feel guilty about that you don't need to feel shame about that the writer of hebrews tells us it was the, with joy set before him that jesus endured the cross he d- did it willingly and he did it to the delight of his heavenly father and because of that we get to be recipients of his great love and mercy and you need to feel no guilt or shame over over jesus's death on the cross and some of you are hearing this and you're not yet Christians, and you're thinking to yourself, this doesn't sound great. This doesn't sound great at all. You're thinking to yourself, I thought, Jesus and the God of the Bible were all about love. This doesn't sound like love. Well, look at what John writes. John is one of Jesus's disciples. He would have witnessed Jesus going to the cross. Look at what he writes. He says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. He says, this is love, not that we loved God, that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, it's fine and well to say that you love someone. It's fine and well to say you think God's a God of love, but I want you to notice something what when you notice what John says here, he says that God loved you before you even loved him, and not only did he love you when you didn't love him, he actually did something about his love so often for us. When we think of love, it's like I love, like I love ice cream, I love Taylor Swift music, right? But God's like, I love you. and My love actually moved me to do something and not just do something, but to actually come and rescue and redeem and save and pursue and love you. Because I looked at you and saw that you were helpless and I didn't want you to stay there. That's love. That's love. Jesus' invitation to you is to come to him. There is no sin that is too great that he cannot forgive. There is nothing you have done that excludes you from the offer of his grace of God. If you just humble yourself, recognize your great need, recognize your brokenness, recognize that God is holy, but he's also loving. He invites you to come and be with him. It's good news. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is an invitation that I would implore you to take. Friends, Jesus took our punishment. He took your punishment. He took my punishment. Thanks be to God for his grace. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that you are kind to us. Lord, right now, I just pray for us that we would receive your gift of grace. For those of us who are watching this, listening to this, who are followers of Jesus, that we would know how loved we are by you, that you proved your love for us in going to the cross. And for any who are listening who don't yet know you, Lord Jesus, would you right now stir our affections that we might respond to your invitation to come. We don't have to be enslaved to our sin. We don't have to be enslaved to our brokenness. We don't have to be enslaved to this world. We can actually be free. You have offered a way for us to be free. Lord, I pray we'd walk in that. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen, thank you, church.